The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. God commands all men and women everywhere to repent. He commands them to repent. He does not invite us to repent. He does not conjole us to repent. He commands us to repent and to serve him. It's not optional. Oh, for a short time, it may be optional. 
But then the final judgment comes. And those who have refused to know God and have refused to worship him will be cast into that lake of fire. Now, the first man formally called to serve the Lord was Moses. Moses was called to engage full-time in the service of God. He was to go to Egypt and call the children of Israel out of Egypt, not to deliver them first and foremost from the bondage they were in, although that was important. He was to call the children of Israel to serve the living God of heaven, to tabernacle with the God of heaven. They were to be a nation of priests before the Almighty God, not just the Levites. Every child of Israel was to be a full-time servant of the Almighty God, tabernacling with him. So it is today. Every person who confesses the name of Jesus and repents of his sin and turns away from wickedness is called the tabernacle with Jesus, where Jesus actually comes and dwells in us and with us. Because we too are called to be priests of the Most High God. Now, I want to look with you for a moment at the training necessary for Moses to begin this full-time employment with God. The first thing that God does is found in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus, where God calls to him from the bush. There is an a revelation of God. You really cannot serve God until you have that revelation. And then the first thing you discover in that revelation is that God is holy. And you're to take off your shoes. You're to step out of the flesh and all the thoughts you have of survival. You are to step out and you're to step onto the platform of God. Now, in our culture today, we have a great deal of education for those who would serve the Lord. Degrees. I have a Master's of Divinity degree from seminary. You're expected, in fact, in the denomination that I was grown in, You could not be a pastor if you didn't have a master's of divinity. It was the minimum requirement. That's basically three years of graduate study. An undergraduate degree in theology and a graduate degree. I want to tell you that this is not the preparation that God has in mind for his servants. The preparation that I went through for ministry was of the flesh not of the Spirit. Not once 
in all the years of study. Not once did a seminary professor suggest to me or to us that we should read our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation. Never was there an open discussion of what have you discovered in the scriptures that seems strange to you? What have you discovered that has transformed your life? That was never the question. And when I was formally given a wonderful scholarship to seminary, and then when I was finished with seminary and went forward and was spoken to by the top administration officials, and when I was ordained at a camp meeting, no one ever questioned, what is your relationship to Jesus? It was only assumed, perhaps, perhaps not. They were more interested in, can you preach? Can you hold a crowd? Can you perform the duties necessary? Can you can you lead a congregation in the programs that we want you to engage in? This was not God's preparation. For God, the first basic understanding was, I am calling you, I am commanding you, Moses, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. He was not invited. God did not say to him, Moses, would you consider becoming my servant and going and doing this for me? God didn't say that to him. He said, Moses, go, I'm sending you. God's not very good at inviting. <laughs> He's very good at commanding. And it's ours to obey or to disobey and walk away. So the first thing he did was call him. The second thing he did was show him the Shekinah glory of God, the holiness of God. Step out of your shoes. The ground that you are on is holy ground. This was not the training of a natural man in order to help him work with God. So... Then God said to him, I am a covenant-keeping God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses at this hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. But then God also shows him his great compassion, his love, and his concern for the lost. Now, he also clearly stated that he is the I am God. He is the self-sufficient God. The Lord God of heaven could have sent an angel and killed the Egyptians, destroyed them, and brought the children of Israel out all by himself. But that's not God's way. God wants to use human instrumentality. He wants to use you and me to do his work. 
He wants us to share with him in the work of redemption that we could worship together the Lord God of heaven. It's not a satisfying ego trip. It is it is service to a king. So he's commanded, go assemble the elders of Israel. God does not say to him, Moses, let's talk about a strategy that might work with, with Pharaoh. No, that's not God's way. He said, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you. I've seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I promised to bring you up out of the misery of Egypt. God went to do it. Now, what happens here, God says, the children of Israel, the elders, they'll listen very carefully to you. And then I want you to go with them, take all of them with you, and you all go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert. Why did he ask for only a three-day journey? I think because God was engaging the battle, and he was functioning at a divine level, and he was functioning at a human level. He knew that if he simply told Moses to ask for the children of Israel to escape out of bondage, Pharaoh would have immediately said no, and he would have been justified because he said, these are my people. Problem is, God said they're my people. Now the battle is engaged, and God engages the battle in a very kind way to see if there is a possibility that Pharaoh would soften his heart and do what God asked him to do. That was not to be the case. God knew that wouldn't be the case, but he wanted to give him a chance now, I've seen God do this time after time. In the kindness and the mercy of God, he will bring a person into a relationship, into a situation, call them to serve, and then watch what their decision is. And so often the decision is, I've been called because I'm somebody. I've been called, and I don't need to humble my heart. I just need to push people out of the way and do what I know I can do. This is not about God. This is not about working with his servants. This is about me having my way. And I know better than all of you. I'm smarter than all of you. I can do it my way, and it'll work. And if you'll just move out of my way, I'll show you I can make it work. This is not God's way. It's the way of the devil. It's the way of darkness. But I've seen time after time, God in his great mercy, I can't emphasize that enough, God in his great mercy invites a person 
by commanding him to serve him. Not invite in the traditional humanistic way, but God's invitation is a command. And he commanded Pharaoh to release the children of Israel for a three-day journey into the desert where they could worship their God. Now, it's very logical because Pharaoh and the Egyptians hate people who are shepherds. They hated the children of Israel. They thought they were dumb. They thought they were beneath them. But God in his kindness offers that opportunity. Now, please, may I just speak to you for a moment? What opportunity has God offered to you? And how have you dealt with that opportunity? Have you abused it? Let hatred rise up in your heart because you're not being given the center stage and you're not being made to look like you're somebody. God doesn't use people like that. God calls us and commands us to humble our hearts before him and before others, to serve out of a spirit of humility, not arrogance. So here we have God speaking kindly to Pharaoh, ordering him to release the children of Israel for a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices. He says, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. He's saying, look, I know he's not going to respond kindly to this, but do it because if he doesn't respond to my kindness, I'm going to I'm going to level him. I'm going to kill his firstborn son. I'm going to destroy this land if he doesn't respond in kindness. Now, please. I want to go back to what we talked about yesterday. And that is the three signs that God gave Moses as he was talking with him. These are terrifying signs. The first sign to take the staff that was in his hand, cast it down, and it would become a serpent. Moses has had a lot of experience in the desert with his sheep. He's lost sheep to these serpents. And he turns and runs from it, and God calls him back and says, No, reach out your hand, pick that thing up by the tail, and as he did so, it became the staff of God in his hand. In other words, the first part of the training, after you've heard the call of God, and after you have been shown his holiness, after he has showed you his compassion and his mercy, after he has told you that he is self-sufficient, but he's commanding you to take part in what he's doing, and he's given you the authority and the power to do what he's called you to do. The first thing you must know is how to overcome the devil. You overcome the devil by holding on to the staff of God so you rest on it, you walk with it. It is the presence of God with you, and it is in the New Testament the presence of God in you. 
Now you lay that staff down and you begin to be self-sufficient, it will turn into a snake. I can't tell you how many times through the years I've laid down the authority, I've laid down the blessing of Jesus in my life, and it has become a serpent, and I have run from it. I have run from the difficulty and not been able to face it. I've been fearful of the anger and rage of people against me. I've tried to be a pleaser, to make peace. But there's no peace when you're not under the command of God and you're not under his blessing and he's not dwelling with you. There can be no peace. But as I've gone and grabbed that thing by the tail, it has reshaped itself into the staff of God, where I now I am depending upon him. And can I say this? When you grab that serpent by the tail, and it reforms itself into the staff of God, you will be required to humble your heart and eat the humble pie. You'll be required to repent to people even though you don't think you want to, but God calls you to. God only can call and work with a man or a woman who's willing to humble their heart and repent. And that staff reforms. So that's the first sign. The second sign was putting your hand in the cloak bringing it out and showing the full ugliness of the sinful man's heart, even Moses' heart. Moses has not been trained by God at this point. He was trained by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He was a man of strength and power and education, wise and sophisticated, dangerous, smart. But when he tries to start a revolution, he's sent into the desert, the backside of the desert. He's sent to live with Jethro to take care of his sheep. Forty years he's doing that. But it's also interesting to note that those 40 years did not educate Moses in what is most important. The solitude of the desert, the solitude experience of the desert, does not in itself teach you how to walk by faith. It doesn't give you courage. It doesn't give you a spirit of obedience. Now, in the New Covenant, as we walk and Jesus indwells us, as we walk in the desert, we walk also in the school of the Holy Spirit, and he will teach us faith, courage, and a spirit of obedience. But my experience is that many people who particularly new believers come, they don't have a spirit of obedience. They have a spirit of rebellion. They don't come with faith and courage. 
They come with foolishness and boldness, and they don't understand the difficulties. They don't understand the spiritual battle they're facing, and they get wiped out. So Moses now, as God reveals himself and calls him, has to learn faith, courage, and obedience. Those are the three essential elements for any person who would obey the command of God and serve him. Faith, courage, and a spirit of obedience. Now, the second sign of the hand shows the need for faith, courage, and obedience. Because in that journey, we will see the utter wickedness of our hands, what we use to do things in the world. And we will start businesses. We will, we will do things that we think we have to do to survive. We will go places and we will grasp things. We will grasp the sword of the human spirit. And the Holy Spirit has to discipline us. The desert purpose in the New Testament is called the school of the Holy Spirit. And it's where the Holy Spirit comes and deals with us faithfully over that wickedness in our hands. He puts his hand back in his garment by his heart. He brings it out, and his hand is clean, like a child's. That's what God is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. Now, the third sign is a terrifying sign. It's a sign of blood spilled on the ground. It is judgment. It is death. If a man or a woman will not learn how to overcome the devil and will be constantly overthrown by wickedness, if they will not put their hand in their cloak and allow the Lord God of heaven to do that work in their heart and in their hand of cleansing and purifying, then they will be of no use in the service of God and their blood will be spilled. They will die. That's frightening. Now, I don't know how full your cup of iniquity is, but when that cup is full, your life ends. God's judgment falls. Or he just dismisses you and sends you on your way to live in the foolishness of the world. Usually he does not do that to a person who has once tasted the Almighty God and seen that he was good, but on occasion he will. Now, Moses demonstrates his utter lack of faith he demonstrates his utter lack of courage. I don't criticize him for this, for this is where all of us come. 
as God calls us, we have to face the reality that we don't have the courage to do what God has called us to do. He must empower us. He must give us that courage. And he must give us that faith. Faith comes by hearing the word. And as we read these stories and we learn these things, faith grows in our heart and we say, yes, I will trust you, Jesus. Moses says, this is chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 10. O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Well, so what? Today we think to be a pastor or to be of use to God, you have to be able to be quick with your tongue. You have to be able to be eloquent with your mouth. Wrong. The Lord said, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. This is such a vital lesson to understand that we're commissioned by God to go and speak his word, but he must put that word in our mouth and in our heart. How much damage I've seen done by Bible beaters people who go out and beat others on the head with their Bible, condemning them, telling them what they have to do. You have to leave that sin now. You have to be converted now. Will you accept Jesus now? No, it doesn't work. It alienates and separates. It harms. It hurts. God commands... And then he proceeds to show you all of the beauty of his character. Then you have a choice. Moses' choice was no. He says, oh, Lord, please send somebody else to do it. And the Lord became angry with Moses. Now, I'm very grateful that God, in his anger with Moses, did not turn him over to destruction. Instead, he speaks to him about his brother and tells him that his brother is already on the road, he's already making progress, and he will meet him at the mount, Mount Horeb. So Moses is told by God, Take the staff in your hand. It's the staff of God now. He says, take this staff. Rest on this staff. Trust me, Moses. And it says, verse 18, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, Go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Moab and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. He has the staff of God in his hand, but he is afraid to tell his father-in-law Jethro that he's going to go back and deliver the children of Israel. 
He lacked courage and faith. He was obeying, but grudgingly. He was going to see what would happen. So he begins to make his way toward Egypt. Now, at a lodging place on the way, something very strange happens that I have puzzled over for many years, but think I now begin to understand. Moses is at a lodging place, and God came and was ready to kill him. Probably totally disabled him, laid him out on the ground. Now, Zipporah takes a flint knife and cuts off her son's foreskin and touches Moses' feet with it and says, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So the Lord let him alone. So she circumcised her son. So obviously, what I'm reading and understanding in the Spirit is that Moses had never been the head of his household. His father-in-law was the head of his household, and his wife was the head of the household. And she, no doubt, had stood in opposition to this surgery on her son and said, No, we're not going to do that, Moses. But now I want you to see a very valuable lesson. Please understand when I say this. God made a man and a woman, and he made them equal. There is... There is no difference between a man and a woman in the new covenant, under the new covenant. But their functions are radically different. And in the home, the husband is the head of the house. And we find in Timothy, we find in several different places in the New Testament, where a man cannot be chosen as an elder if his family is not walking righteously with God, recognizing him as the head of the house. Now, some of you who are women are going to have a hard time with this. But very frankly, the command is that the wife is to submit to the husband and the husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He laid his life down for the church. And we as husbands, if we're married must lay our lives down for our wives. Well, what if our wives are in full total rebellion? You still lay your life down for your wife. You treat her with kindness, with respect, with courtesy. You call her to walk with you fully in Jesus. But no matter what she says or does, you obey the Lord Jesus. You obey the word of God to your life and to your heart. But you cannot serve the Lord in the fullness of what he wants if you're fighting with your wife. My mom used to always say to me, Raymond, it takes two to fight. You don't have to fight with your brother. It takes two. Well, Mama... He punched me. I had to punch him back. No, you didn't. 
walk away. Don't fight with him. Don't yell at him. Walk away. It was hard for me to do. It's taken me years to learn just to walk away. But what I'm saying to you is Moses was not the head of his house. And when God came to deal with that problem, he did not come to Zipporah and say, Zipporah, you have not circumcised your son. He comes to Moses and is ready to take Moses out because he can't serve the living God of heaven when he's not the head of his household. I want you to hear me, husbands. Your service to God will be dramatically limited if you are not laying your life down for your wife, if you are not the head of your household, if you are not leading your family in worship and scripture and prayer, if you're not leading your family in the service of the church, you will be dramatically limited by how God can use you and bless you. Husbands are not called to be dictators. We talk with that person who is a wife or husband. We share, and we finally come to agreement. But it takes submission on the wife's part, and it takes laying down your life on the husband's part. Now, after this issue is finally settled, the Lord left him alone. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. Now, Aaron, if you read the whole scripture, Aaron left before Moses left. But at least now, Moses is honest with Aaron. He was not honest with his father-in-law. But he is now honest with his brother Aaron because he's involving Aaron in this journey and in this battle that is about to begin to take place. They arrive, and Moses and Aaron bring together all of the elders because they have a message from God. They all know who Aaron is, and they all know who Moses was because he tried to deliver them and was driven out. And here he is in the flesh back. Aaron tells them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And then the signs are performed before the people. And they believe. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord. They bowed down and worshipped. Now I want to tell you, the Lord is very concerned for you today. Will you bow down and worship him? Will you know that God can deliver you out of any situation or any bondage? He can break the power of any snare. If we will humble our hearts, be circumcised in the spirit. What do I mean? 
Well, circumcision was a sign that the power of man was not what made the world go around. Circumcision was a sign that God was the one who gave the ability to have children, to gain wealth, to live, and to prosper. It is God who gives us that. It is not a natural right. It is a God-given right. Now the word to Moses was, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. That's what his wife said. We must become bridegrooms of blood, guys. Where we take our position and our place in our families as the head of the household. Humbly. No arrogance. And not give way. Now, I warn you, when you do this, your wife may leave you. She may become enraged and say, I'm the head. You do what I tell you. And then there's the war of the roses. But no matter what the result is, this is the position a man must take. A dear friend of mine, a non-believer, was richly blessed by God because of his kindness to me. And God granted him his wish, which was to own a health club. That health club was built out, 10,000 members, very prosperous. But then things began to go wrong. He called me and we sat together and talked. I said, what's going wrong? He said, my wife thinks that we must do this. And if I don't do that, she's going to leave me. And I want my marriage more than I want my club. He knew she was making decisions that would crash that business. The decisions were out of fear and not out of courage. And he had to sell the business at a great loss. And today he works not with his wife. He works in another large industry. He's a vice president. He's successful, but his income is more than cut in half. I could tell you story after story like that. Moses had to take the leadership in his family. Now Moses and Aaron, who've been trained now by God, They've seen his holiness. They have seen... They've seen God's glory. They've been empowered. And now, at the command of God, they go to command Pharaoh to release the people for a three-day journey. 
Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. This is chapter 5 of Exodus. God does not say, Please, Pharaoh, if you'll let my people go, I'll give you this and this and this. God could have said, Look, I'll give you a ton of gold. God didn't bargain. I want you to hear me clearly. God does not bargain with a human person. He commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin and to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. He does not enter into a discussion about whether or not the scriptures are true or false. He doesn't enter into a a whole discussion about why this man or this woman should believe in Jesus. He commands him, believe on the name of the Lord. Repent of your sin. The judgment will be on whether or not that person obeyed the command of God. If they don't obey the command of God, it is because there is full rebellion in their heart, and they refuse to acknowledge the Creator of heaven and earth. They refuse to acknowledge the Christ who died on Calvary. And if they reject that, they are going to be judged, and the blood will be poured out on the ground, and they will die and go to hell. It's that simple. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. He hears clearly. He is commanded to obey the Lord God of heaven. And he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? All of the arrogance rose up in his heart, and he is fully exposed for the foolish man he is. They said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with a plague or with the sword. In other words, we're dealing here with a God who will judge us. And by the way, he will judge you if you do not obey. Very interesting evangelistic style, isn't it? It's not this pablum of pleasing. Oh, please, Would you come and just accept Jesus? Are you kidding me? The question is never whether I will accept Jesus. The question is whether Jesus will accept me, and he will only accept me. If I obey the command and repent of my sin and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I refuse to do that with all of my sophistry with all of my foolishness in my own heart and mind, then the judgments of God will fall on me. The king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Probably as soon as this message went with Moses and Aaron to the elders, they didn't show up for work the next day. And the Pharaoh says, Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. 
Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. The same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making the bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they may keep on working and pay no attention to lies. Now, I want to tell you, as soon as you make a decision that you're going to get Jesus serious with Jesus, as soon as you make a decision that you're going to repent of your sin and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan is going to come after you with every lie in his arsenal. He's going to attack you. He's going to try to make a fool of you. He's going to destroy you if he can. This is war. And if you think you live in a peaceful time where you can just lounge your way, as the song we used to sing when I was a kid at the campfire, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. That's not what life is. Life is a battle. And you are called by the holy God of heaven to take up the shield and the sword of the Spirit, to put on the armor and go to battle. And every person called to be a follower of Jesus Christ is called to the service of God, full-time service. We are called to be fishers of men. Some of you have not won anyone to Jesus in the last 10 or 15 years. Some of you have never won anyone to Jesus. How can that be? Because you're a part-time servant of Jesus. You're not a full-time servant. I don't care whether you work in the government. That's your place of ministry. That's where you teach the gospel. I don't care if you work in construction. Then convert the people you do the construction for. Call the workers to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Command them to. Well, they're in trouble now. The slave drivers and the foremen go out. They tell the people, you aren't going to get any more straw from us. You have to do it yourself. Now, I want to show you the heart of the children of Israel. I want to show you the heart of every man and every woman. Verse 14, this is Exodus, the fifth chapter, verse 14. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw. Pharaoh saying, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. This is why you keep on saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You won't be given any straw. And the Israelite foreman realized that they were in trouble when they were told this. Now I want you to see the heart of the children of Israel. And this carries all the way through the wilderness experience until finally they die in the desert. They are now being troubled 
by a serpent. They need to take that serpent and grab him by the tail. And they need to go to God and say, Oh God, look what Pharaoh is saying. We appeal to you, Almighty God. He was their deliverer. But instead, they go to their slave master. Well, we're out of time for this broadcast. I'll continue this study on Moses next week. Tomorrow will be a special broadcast on the School of the Holy Spirit with Joseph. I pray you'll listen. I'd love to hear from some of you. I haven't heard this week from any of you. Would you go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and click on that button uh, for donating online? Or would you write to me? When a week goes by and I don't hear from any of you, I begin to be very concerned. I need your encouragement. I need you to walk with me. This is a faith ministry. Would you write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, it's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenlay from the National Prayer Chapel. If you'd like to learn more about us, Google National Prayer Chapel and it'll give you all the info. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.